You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's a story about a former Army captain turned aspiring author, who looks at the lighter side of war. We'll tell you about that more in a moment, but just a few reminders to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you are watching this podcast on our YouTube channel, we appreciate you subscribing as well. Don't forget to subscribe to the Killcliffe YouTube channel and download the Killcliffe TV app. You can get all of our podcasts through Killcliffe there as well. Don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. You can go to our website, hazardground.com, and click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. Same thing on your smartphone. It's very user-friendly because it'll redirect you right to the app. So go to hazardground.com on your smartphone, get redirected to the Amazon app. You do all your normal Amazon shopping. Whatever you spend, we'll get a percentage of that number, and then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the great charities and organizations that have been featured here on the Hazard Ground, so you can literally donate to veterans' causes just from your couch, from your smartphone, wherever you are. It's a simple, easy way to do your part to help out veterans all across America. Don't forget, as well, to help us out with our Apple Podcast reviews, trying to crack the top 100 Apple Podcasts. We need more reviews and your help to do it. doesn't have to be a lengthy review. Just give us five stars. Tell us what you like about the show. And you can tell uh, how much you like the host. I mean, that never hurts. It's always good to do that as well. But in all seriousness, if we can get more of those, we can help grow this Hazard Ground community and certainly get these stories told to more and more people. Now on to this week's guest, who is, again, a retired Army captain who had one deployment to Afghanistan, turned aspiring author, and he wrote a book named Kilroy Was Here, which is basically a humorous look at the... Absurdities of Modern Warfare. He has two other short stories that have both been published on Amazon, and he is Brett Allen joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Brett, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's funny. I had found you on Twitter uh, and then just started stalking you a little bit and uh, everything that you had done, and I'm like, you know, this is like a good story. You know, I mean, look, we spend a lot of time with serious subjects here on the podcast, and with good reason. There's a, there's a lot of things to discuss, but Anytime we can look at the lighter side of warfare that puts a smile on our face, we're certainly willing to do that. And your book um, has been wildly successful. Again, Kilroy, is, it, Kilroy Was Here is the title. So uh, we thank you so much for being here, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I'm always looking for uh, ways to, to plug the book. So this is awesome. <laughs> All right. So start back at the beginning. Uh, how and why you signed up for the Army? Okay. Um, well, I was a senior in high school uh, when September 11 happened. I remember... Uh, the office assistant coming into my senior studies class and uh, announcing that a plane had just hit the World Trade Center. Kind of like everybody else, we, we thought it must have been some type of mistake, uh, navigation error or something like that. Uh, but then when the second plane hit it, and then news of the Pentagon came in, it was, it was clear that that wasn't the case. Um, I thought about enlisting right there out of high school, um, but I had already been accepted to Michigan State. My parents had uh, encouraged me to kind of let those uh, high emotions of the time settle uh, and go get some school in first. So that's what I did. I went to Michigan State. Um, I remember sitting in my dorm room in March of 2003 um, watching the, uh, the gear up and then the invasion of Iraq and just kind of thinking, what am I doing here? Why, why are those guys, not me? Uh, I had friends from high school that had joined the army and the Marines. 
Um, and I knew that they were on their way over there. Um, so I got kind of restless again. Um, I, I switched my major like seven times between freshman and sophomore year. Um, twice that in my head. And uh, I just couldn't seem to, to figure out what I wanted to do. But the military kept uh, kept calling back. So I thought about uh, dropping out of college and enlisting again. Um, but my dad found this uh, two-year ROTC program at Michigan State where you do kind of like a catch-up uh, program at Fort Knox during the summer. So I spent a, a month at Fort Knox uh, going through this catch-up program. Um, Good old basic my- camp at Fort Knox. Exactly. It was like yep. a condensed basic training. We were the first class that uh, actually had drill sergeants. So uh, previous uh, years, they it was like kind of a hug fest. But uh, the year we were there, they were like, ah, we're going to see how they handle like the actual pressures of basic training. So we got the whole shark, uh, the shark bowl when we got there. And uh, it was it was an experience. And then uh, right from there, I actually lucked out, got a slot to airborne school and uh, ended up going through airborne school as a civilian, which I'm not sure anybody really knew about at the time. Um, But uh, came back, finished my two years ROTC and then uh, commissioned as an armor officer. So when you were going through basic camp, um, you clearly had no preconceived notion about the military at that point in time. Was there any part of you that thought maybe this wasn't such a good idea? (laughs) yeah there was a big part of me that thought that um (laughs) you know i i'd seen full metal jacket at that point (laughs) that was your only frame of reference huh yeah yeah i was not setting a very good example (laughs) i was familiar with the whole drill sergeant scene and then uh i remember sitting in uh, this room with all the other cadets on the first day and this captain comes in and he's like i'm the last person that's going to be nice to you for the next 28 days so um, once I walk out this door, you're going to meet your drill sergeants and it's game on. And then he walked out and left us sitting there for like five minutes, let us stew on it for a few minutes. And then the drill sergeants came running in and it was pretty much what I had uh, imagined it would be based off the full metal jacket. Yeah, uh, that five minutes must have felt like hours. Um, yeah. Physically, uh, were you in like shape for the whole thing? I mean, was, was, was there anything physically about basic camp that sort of daunted you? Not really. Um, I was a cross country runner in high school. I that helps. continued, yeah, I continued <laughs> with the run and did a uh, couple marathons, and uh, went into basic training. Or not, I won't call it basic training. That's an insult to basic training. But uh, I went into the uh, the month long pansy basic training with uh, uh, pretty good legs under me, so I was good. Yeah, and and so like. It's weird. I remember going through ROTC. It was always the fast runners who stood out to everybody. It didn't matter if you could do 300 push-ups. It didn't matter if you could do 500 sit-ups. The fast runners always got all the clout. Like, it was just one of those things where, you know, and I wasn't slow, but I wasn't fast. And so uh, I was always jealous of those dudes who automatically got put in good leadership positions and everything else because they could run. You know, I mean, nobody was chasing me. So what the hell am I running for? Yep. That was the, the one thing I made sure that I maintained was the running. I remember getting to my unit at uh, Fort Drum, went out on a, a run with the commander and two of the other lieutenants on like the third day and just crushed them on a, a six mile run. And from there on out, I had the respect of the commander and the other lieutenants. So yeah, kiss ass. Um, did you know that you <laughs> wanted to be an armor officer? How did that work out for you? 
Um, it was back and forth between armor and infantry. Um, I just knew that I wanted to be combat arms. My grandpa was a ranger in World War II. He was one of Darby's Rangers, uh, uh, B Company. So that kind of played a pretty big part in my wanting to serve. Um, he was my first salute when I commissioned uh, into uh, the armor branch. So uh, he, he used to give me a ton of crap about being an officer, though, because he was a private first class. That's pretty funny. Um, I neglected to say this at the beginning, but you only spent four years in. And um, I, I wonder, you know, all that that sort of, you know, who all emotion that you had and wanting to be on the front lines and everything else. When you look back on that and reflect, do you think that there was any immaturity in that that notion back then? I mean, I, I get it. Hindsight's twenty twenty. I guess what I'm kind of driving at. I mean, if another war breaks out, theoretically, and, you know, it's your kids down the road who want to do that. Would you advise them to pick combat arms and get to the front lines as quick as possible? Or do you think that's just a lot of bravado for an 18, 19, 20 year old kid? Yeah, I think it's a lot of bravado, but I think I'd also have the understanding of wanting to do that. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think that at that time uh, I kind of knew what I was getting into, but like you said, you have the cocky confidence uh, of being 18, 19. Uh, I mean, I guess when I commissioned, I was 22. So, um, but still, you think you're bulletproof and you, you don't have anything anchoring you down. So it's kind of a, a nothing to lose situation. Um, but being a parent now, I, I would probably try to sway my kids in the other direction. Yeah. In the rear with the gear seems just fine, right? Um, yep. No, I, I kid. Uh, so uh, you get commissioned, uh, you head off to Fort Drum, 10th Mountain Division. How quickly do you end up deploying from there? Well, I actually, um, I was supposed to go to 173rd Airborne. I was going to go to a, their cavalry regiment out of Schweinfurt, Germany. Ah. And I, we had four lieutenants, at armor officer basic that were supposed to go there. And, um, when we got there, like two weeks into officer basic, we got, uh, orders changing our orders. Two of us got, uh, sent to Fort Knox or staying at Fort Knox. And then two guys got sent to, uh, JRTC down in Fort Polk. Um, I was one of the guys that stayed at Fort Knox and I ended up serving a year as a basic training XO with 515 CAV. Um, it was a, it was a cool assignment. I mean, obviously not an ideal assignment for a guy who's in a combat arm branch and wants to get to a unit, but, uh, I got to work with a lot of great people. I'm still in contact with a lot of the drill sergeants that I, I worked with there. And I mean, they, those guys are outstanding. They were all, uh, coming off from Iraq deployments. They were kind of in like a decompression phase. So I got to hear a lot of interesting stories about their deployments, about the invasion of Iraq. And it was just a, a, I mean, it wasn't useful stuff uh, from a job standpoint for getting to my unit, but uh, it, it was useful stuff from a life experience and battle experiments, uh, getting to hear those stories. Were you nice to all the privates there after uh, the way you were treated at basic camp? Were you a little bit nicer, a little bit more gentle, or did they tell you you had to be a hard ass? I tried to follow the battle rhythm of the uh, the basic training cycle and I mean, I, I wasn't very nice at the beginning, but I also didn't want to step on any drill sergeant toes. So I, I kind of hung towards the back. But at the end of the cycle, when uh, the drill sergeants ease up, that's when I had the most fun because I got to go out and do 
uh, some of the lanes they did and right. uh, be a walker and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, I actually had a similar experience. It was only for about a month, but right after I commissioned, um, I didn't have a report date to my first assignment at Fort Hood for about 30 or 40 days. And so instead of just, you know, actually not getting in the army, I signed in and was the XO of, of the AIT company um, at Aberdeen Proving Grounds where uh, I was set to do my basic course because I was an ordnance officer at the time. And uh, I had that same experience as you did working with all the, the the privates and everything. And I remember being just so floored. Like every time I walked into a room, all these kids stood up and snapped to attention. I'm like, dude, I'm like a day older than you. <laughs> And I've been in the army exactly five less weeks than you have. Like it was just something that always stood out as, as weird to me. And I, I don't know if you felt the same way. It was just one of those things where, you know, as a, as a 21 year old kid, 22 year old kid, you don't really grasp that whole thing yet. At least I didn't, cause I didn't have a lot of military experience like you. Like I had, you know, obviously I had a grandfather was in world war II, I had a stepfather in Vietnam and everything else, but I just didn't have that sort of background uh, about the military. Was that a weird experience for you at all that? A little bit. Uh, we had a pretty wide range of people coming in at that time. It was 2007. So yeah. the army was pretty much accepting anybody that had a, a heartbeat. A heartbeat uh, and half a brain, right? Yeah. We had one guy come in that I don't remember what the cutoff age was at the time, but he was right there. He had two sets of uh, dentures and neck tattoos and the whole nine yards. Like, wow. Anybody that can make it made it in. And uh, so it, it was kind of weird because I had all these 18, 19 year old guys who were, yeah, just a couple years younger than me. But I also had these older guys who uh, had been floating around for a long time and uh, came in. So they were 10 years my senior, but uh, uh, just trying to make their way through. But it, it always floored me the way you could separate who who was going to be the good the good soldiers and who were going to be the bad soldiers yeah. within the first two weeks i mean you see the leadership starting to come out and the guys that are born with it it's and just like rtc see, but on the other side of the ledger yeah i mean yeah you knew who the dummies were um and they showed themselves on the college campus every day uh you mentioned earlier about when you went through basic basic camp you know, there was a party at the beginning who thought that that you might have made a mistake. When you heard some of the stories from those guys who were coming back and everything else, and you were all, you know, gung ho, let's let's go to combat. Did any of that sort of unnerve you a little bit, or was it you sort of maybe even excited you a little bit more? Uh, a little of both. I think you, if you hear stuff like that and it doesn't make you a little bit nervous, you're probably a liar. Um, you know, you. You hear that stuff and you swallow it and you know that that's why you signed up in the first place. So you kind of put your head down and drive on because that's what you're there to do. Um, I guess for me, it was more uh, just seeing the way those guys had processed it. Um, for me, that was kind of my concern was how am I going to handle this? Uh, what's my reaction to combat going to be and to see those guys come out of it and uh, tell the way they handled it and things like that was more helpful than actually hearing the, the stories about the combat itself. All right. So when do you get to Fort Drum? Fort Drum uh, was December of 2007. Okay. So I got to uh, uh, Fort Drum and took a, over a platoon in Cherokee Troop 371 Cav. Uh, with 3rd Brigade, 10th Mountain. 
And uh, I was there for about six months, six, seven months. Um, before I left Fort Knox, I had done a spur ride and uh, blown out my knee. Um, so I was carrying some guy out of a building. We were doing uh, one of our last exercises for the spur ride. And uh, my knee buckled in the wrong direction. And uh, the Army doctors at Fort Knox told me my knee bones were fine after they x-rayed them. And then I got to Fort Drum and had another series of issues uh, where the knee gave out, ended up getting an MRI, and they told me my ACL was completely severed. So uh, about six months at Fort Drum, I ended up having a knee surgery and then ended up on squadron staff. And that's kind of what uh, in, ended up inspiring Kilroy was here was the, the uh, time on staff. Interesting. Um First of all, what's a spur ride? I'm not an armor officer. You know, something with your spurs, obviously. But what, I mean, what, what is it? I don't, this goes over my head. You guys wear Stetsons and spurs, and it's just weird. <laughs> we like to play dress up. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, uh, spur ride is it's like a it varies in duration, but the one we did at Fort Knox was 48 hours long, and you're doing constant um, tests, uh, proficiency proficiency tests it's kind of like earning your eib for an infantryman um you we ended up uh doing proficiency tests and then ending with this uh sticks lane in an urban mount site and that's where i blew out my knee but uh, at the culmination of the uh, spur ride you earn a pair of silver spurs uh, which you can't get unless you do a spur ride if you deploy with a cavalry unit then you get a pair of gold spurs uh, but you can only get the silver through a spur ride. So no horses involved, though? No horses. Okay. They had horses at the uh, the ceremony uh, <laughs> for the one they did at Fort Drum, but uh, we didn't have any of that. Side note, have you ever actually ridden a horse while in uniform? Not in uniform. Okay. I have not. All right. Just just making sure that wasn't part of the whole experience. Um, were you upset that they sort of misdiagnosed your knee? A little bit. Uh, they were very... Cavalier? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So I, it happened uh, towards the end of the day, um, on the day that it happened, I finished out the spur ride, um, because I had come too far and wasn't going to go home. Um, so then as soon as the spur ride was done, they took me over to the hospital. The, the night staff there gave me, uh, x-rays and there was, uh, some doctor on duty who basically said I was fine. And if I wasn't, then to come back in a month. And by the time that month was up, I was already at Fort Drum. So uh, I just kind of let it go. I was uh, able to run and whatnot. Um, but every once in a while, if I turned my leg wrong, my knee would give out and I'd go down. So we were running a sticks lane at Fort Indian Town Gap um, ah, at a field training exercise. Very familiar with the gap. Yes, yes. I love that place. Good old um, Pennsylvania, baby. <laughs> so our squadron commander was uh, walking uh, our lane while uh, I was running this platoon attack, and we were coming around to assault the objective, and my knee buckled. I went down, uh, and he was like, holy crap. Like, I heard that pop from back here. You're, you're going to see a doctor. So I ended up getting an MRI scheduled, and – they were like, can't believe you've been walking around on this for six months. So. Wow. Uh, were you sort of angry and frustrated as well about, you know, hey, I signed up 
and wanted to be on the front lines. And so far, I've spent two plus years and I haven't even sniffed it. A little bit. Um, it was uh, a lot of sour grapes when I, I first got the order change from the 173rd. Like that was that was my dream assignment. And coming out of ROTC, I couldn't believe it. I had lucked out because uh, I was going to a cavalry unit and I was going to an airborne unit, which were the two things that I had wanted. Um, so, yeah, I was uh, a little ticked off. Uh, it lightened it a little bit. That's one of my buddies from Michigan State. He was a, a armor officer, too. We both got assignment to the 173rd and we both got our orders changed at the same time to stay at Fort Knox. So I at least got to uh, stay with somebody I knew. Uh, we ended up living together while we were there, and it ended up being a, a fairly decent time. Um, and uh, the funny thing is the the 173rd Airborne unit that I was supposed to go to were ended up being the ones that relieved us in Afghanistan uh, when we left at the end of 2009. Oh, there you go. Uh, so rehab goes on, uh, and you're on staff. Now, do you actually deploy while you're still sort of on the mend? Yeah, I was uh, I was out of my brace and everything uh, by the time we deployed. Uh, about a month prior to deployment, I was able to get the brace off and start jogging again. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was able to do most things. I remember I was <laughs> ended up a little overweight when I got to Bagram, um, so started running the outer loop of Bagram uh, as many times as I could before we ended up going forward to our FOB. Um, And I ended up dropping like 25, 30 pounds while I was in Afghanistan. So ended up good. I was in pretty, pretty great shape when I got back. Now you said they moved you up to staff. They moved you up to staff just because you got injured. We had another Lieutenant come in and uh, we didn't, they didn't really have another spot for him, uh, another platoon available. And I was hobbling around the, uh, the squadron area. So they decided to throw me up to the squadron operations office. That's kind of like a jerk move. That's what I thought. Okay. <laughs> I mean, did you, did you raise any hell with it with your, with your squadron commander? Now with my squadron commander, uh, he, uh, he wasn't a very personable person. Um, <laughs> they so never <laughs> I, I went to my uh, troop commander mm-hmm. who uh, he was, he was an awesome troop commander. Um, unfortunately, there was just nothing he could do about it. I, I'd been there for six months and I was, I was among the oldest of the platoon leaders there. Uh, I was about to make a uh, uh, captain another six months. So they decided to, take me up. I think the, the year in Fort Knox kind of screwed me because by the time this all came into play, I was, like I said, getting ready to make captain while most of the other platoon leaders were getting ready to make first lieutenant. Got it. Okay. Uh, so you mentioned you get to Bagram. Do you, do you know where you're going, what fob you're going to, what your mission is when you get there? Yeah, we spent a lot of late nights at uh, Fort Drum planning everything out, uh, being in the operations office. Uh, we actually were originally slated to go to Iraq, but then uh, we got, uh, in August of 08, we got diverted um, and sent to Afghanistan. So we had loads and loads of hours just uh, in the operations room at Drum planning the movement, uh, 
to Bagram and then from Bagram down to uh, Fob Altmer in the Logar province, uh, which was, if I remember correctly, about 80 kilometers south of Kabul, I think. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, we had a movement that went from Bagram through uh, Kabul and then uh, down uh, Highway 1 into Logar to Fob Altmer. And what was your job on staff? Um, well, when I got there, I was supposed to be a battle captain. Uh, that's, uh, where they were going to throw all the extra lieutenants apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when we got there, they realized they didn't have anybody coordinating air operations. So they told me I was the, uh, S three air is what they called it. Um, and I asked them, how am I supposed to do that. I've never worked with helicopters and the op sergeant major pointed to a couple Apaches landing over on the Bagram airstrip and he was like, go ask those guys. Um, so that's what I did. I went to the airstrip. I started asking questions, um, figured out who the liaison was from our brigade headquarters and went and talked to him um, and just kind of pieced it together as we went. Um, uh, I spent about a month at Bagram, um, moving people to FOB Baltimore. I didn't get to go on the ground movement, um, but I had to coordinate a lot of people and equipment movement from Bagram to FOB Baltimore. And then once we got there, I was uh, in charge of planning uh, the recon missions for the Apaches that were attached to us. And uh, a lot of resupply missions, we set up quite a few outposts and uh, 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 cops while we were there. So what's day-to-day life like for you? I mean, you're basically walking into the operations center and hanging out there all day, right? Yes. Um, not what you had signed up for. Not what I had signed up for. Right. Um, fortunately, I was able to at least make myself uh, useful on the airfield. It was kind of given to me as my thing to run. So I, I had a couple of really good NCOs that had uh, deployed with the unit in 06 uh, when they had uh, set up Cop Keating and uh, some other outposts. And So you're to blame for that whole mess then? No, but I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm good friends with a couple of guys that uh, Jake Tapper had interviewed for uh, the Outpost book. So it was kind of interesting to read that book well, and see some. We have told names. several of those stories, so we might have some uh, some cross paths there. Um, yeah. So check check out any of our Cobb Keating stories. But anyway, I'm sorry, I just you know I had to poke some fun at you. But uh, go ahead, I apologize. No, no worries. Um, I, it was ended up being a lot of fun on the nights when we were doing aerial resupply missions or air assault missions because uh, I got to basically go around the airfield and. Uh, when we were doing resupply missions, especially, I would always help out with uh, the sling loads and uh, hooking loads on the bottom of the helicopter. So, I mean, if I couldn't experience combat, at least I got to have the uh, the Chinooks hovering two feet over my head with the potential for being crushed to death. So, Yeah, I guess. I mean, there's that. Um, and, and so in doing all this, I, I guess, I mean, how do you describe your, your combat experience? Uh, not a lot of combat experience. Um, so that's kind of what Kilroy was here is about is, uh, it's about a officer that comes in thinking he's, uh, going to leave his mark on Afghanistan. 
and uh, be able to make a difference. But uh, he gets relegated to a squadron desk job. Mm-hmm. And it, it follows him through the year as he builds this relationship with his uh, interpreter that uh, it was one of the, squ- the squadron commander's interpreters that kind of got kicked to the wayside. And um, he starts to realize over the course of the year that even in this mundane job and often ridiculous job, uh, he can still make a difference by the way he's uh, influencing the people around him. Um, I did have one. I, yeah, I was going to say, don't get too far ahead because I wanted to ask you about anything about the deployment that was sort of significant. Like, was there anything that happened there that stands out to you um, as a seminal moment for, for you particularly? Well, I did uh, towards the end of the deployment. I, uh, I think it was in October of 09, we left in December. So it was about two months before we were going to leave. Um, I was able to go out on a resupply mission. We had a, a cop down in uh, the district of Kerwar, which was uh, in normal conditions, it was only accessible for resupply by a helicopter. So I had spent months resupplying this place by helicopter, but uh, it just happened to be that the road conditions were good enough that uh, the one road in and out we thought was traversable. Um, so we were sending a ground convoy down there and I was able to go along. Um, we got about halfway uh, to the cop when one of the local nationals trucks overturned uh, on this narrow road. So we spent uh, a good couple hours uh, while the maintenance platoon tried to pull this thing back up on its wheels. And uh, once we finally got everybody back going, we probably drove about 20 meters and uh, my truck uh, hit an IED. Um, so it was a, a command wire IED. Um, so we, we knew somebody was out there watching. Um, we, we took all the necessary steps, uh, I mean, set up 360, uh, perimeter, um, tried to get everybody out of the, the kill zone, even though there wasn't really a kill zone. It was just a, a hit them and run. The IED was pretty small. Um, we had one guy with a concussion, another guy, uh, the gunner had a separated shoulder, but, um, thank God that was all it was. And then, uh, by this time, it was uh, after dark, so me and the uh, truck commander that uh, I had been riding with <laughs> and the maintenance platoon sergeant, we um, followed the command wire up the hill uh, while we were being uh, covered by the, uh, the trucks below, uh, but we didn't come across anybody. Uh, we got to the end of the wire, which had uh, gone over the, top, the crest of a hill, and uh, whoever had blown it had been long gone. But, well, you got your story, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, you'll see bits and pieces of that in, the, uh, in, in Kilroy was here. Um, the guy, I guess, gets a little bit of redemption at the end and gets to experience what he wanted to experience, even though it uh, has a end result that's not quite what he wanted. Yeah, well, I mean... I don't know that that's the combat experience you wanted. You'd rather be, you know, staring down the the end of your barrel, putting rounds down range, not being on the receiving end of a, a pop shot IED that could shed shrapnel up your ass. I mean, you know, that's that's. I don't know if that's the combat experience you were looking for or not. <laughs> right, and that's kind of why I wanted to write this book because I, I mean, 
when you think about the the literature that's come out of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, you're hearing the exciting stories, the guys that kicked in doors, the guys that are in these crazy firefights, but you don't hear about the countless soldiers that are drafting PowerPoint slides and making sure all the fonts are the same and the transitions aren't too flashy for the, the commander that's going to be picking them apart. And I, there's just a lot of ridiculousness that uh, the civilian world doesn't see that I wanted to shed some light on. Yeah, I mean, I guess while you're there going through all this, do, do you have any idea that you should start making mental notes? Are you taking notes about your experience there and everything else? Like, when does the actual idea that, hey, I got to write all this shit down, you know, uh, if it finally hit you? Well, uh, I remember vividly telling uh, a couple of the other officers in the operations office that nobody would believe this crap if I wrote it in the book. Um, so that that's when the idea kind of hit me, you know, like I, I should write this down. I had been uh, doing a little bit of writing on the side for a number of years and um, nothing of any significance, but uh, I knew that that was something that I potentially wanted to do. So I started, yeah, I started making some notes. I've got, tons of uh, green books downstairs that uh, have a few notes in them and uh, quite a few obscene drawings after uh, being left unattended in the operations office. Um, But uh, once I got home, uh, it really kind of hit me that, you know, I could, I could easily fill a novel with this. And it was probably about a year and a half after I got out that I, I started actually brainstorming in earnest and then uh, and then writing it out. So. All right. I want to put this on pause because I, I do want to get to your decision to leave the military. I mean, when you signed up, you wanted to go to war. Did you, I mean, obviously you had your four-year commitment from ROTC. Did you think you were only doing four and leaving? Or was it because of the path that you took that you said, look, I, this is not what I thought it was going to be and got out? Like what? So when you get back, what happens? So I actually made the call while I was over there. Um, I, I had never really thought of it as being a career thing. It, it wasn't out of the picture that it would be a career thing. Um, I knew I wanted to serve. I wanted to do four years, but there were other things that I wanted to do. So I, I kind of left it open. Um, but when the knee thing happened and I didn't get the, the combat experience that, a a normal platoon leader in a combat arm branch would get uh, that kind of made the decision for me Uh, about halfway through the deployment. uh, I I made the final decision and uh, put in my refrad paperwork and I ended up having to uh, travel up to a a different fob uh, one day to have a meeting with our uh, brigade commander to just kind of like an exit interview. He talked to me about other options and I did consider them for quite a while. Um, I basically all the way up until the last couple months before I got out, I considered staying in and going to different branches, but uh, I just felt like an armor officer with no combat experience was probably a pretty rare thing at that point. Um, And to go to career course and then take command while having never had combat experience, uh, wasn't going to be the, the greatest thing for anybody. Did the brigade commander call you son at any point during the conversation? <laughs> um, I feel like that's what they do. Son, n- you've got your whole life ahead of you. 
Now that I recall, uh, pre- pretty sure he ordered uh, offered me an ROTC position somewhere, uh, but there's a an exaggerated uh, version of the interview in the book. So you'll have to check oh, it out. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm curious. I just remember that's what my brigade commander said to me when I left active duty for the guard. Son, you, you might not want to do this. I'm like, <laughs> I get it. You're old and I'm young, but we're not related. Um, so, all right. So you make the decision to get out. You said it was until about a year and a half uh, after you'd gotten out that you started to write it down uh, or just thought, started putting it in a book. Uh, I mean, clearly you knew it was going to be satirical, so to speak, but did you have an idea of how you wanted Kilroy was here to to lay out? Like, was was it just chronological for you, or how did you end up going about it? Yeah, so I, I knew I wanted to cover a full deployment. Um, the Everything else, I had no idea. Uh, I'd never done long-form writing before. So I started reading books on writing, um, books by Stephen King and Ray Bradbury and all that good stuff, um, and just reading in general uh, to try to study the different techniques of different authors. Um, but when I started writing it, uh, I just kind of sat down and went. Um, I thought I would edit most of the stuff I didn't like out later. Uh, I ended up uh, starting out, I was trying to follow three different characters uh, through this deployment. And it wasn't a good call to try to do that on my first ever novel attempt because it was just too much to keep track of. I ended up getting 13 chapters in and I was like, this is garbage. So (laughs) I, uh, I switched to the first person perspective and wrote the last, uh, like, I guess, 20 some uh, chapters from the first person perspective. And then for the second draft, I came around and rewrote the first 13 chapters uh, from the first person. And then it all kind of fell into place from there. I mean, was there anything, obviously your deployment experience is the basis for inspiration, but how much of the book is actually, for lack of a better term, factual? Like there were actually legitimate things that happened that you're actually putting down. Oh, I can't give away the magician's secret. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean... Percentage. Can much, you percentage-wise it? I would say about 90% in the book, or the the events in the book are based in some type of reality. Gotcha. Um, okay. Whether it happened to me uh, on deployment or at Fort Knox, I kind of like picked some pieces from all over the place and uh, integrated into the story. What is uh, one of the things from a sort of, you know, satirical side, uh, when you talk about the experience of combat, like, give me, can you, can you give me a couple of examples? And again, I don't want you to give away the whole book because we want people to buy it, but you know, uh, of something that is just so absurd that you think people wouldn't believe uh, when you tell them about your combat experience or Kilroy was here and the combat experience of the character in it? Um, well, uh, so in one of the, the scenes leading up to the IED incident, they're uh, traversing through this uh, small town and the, the, the city is real packed together. So they're having to be very careful, move slowly. They got crowds of people thrown, uh, coming around. And uh, the 
guy hears his uh, gunner up above uh, giggling uncontrollably and he ends up like pulling on his pant leg and he's like what what's going on what is the deal and he's like oh, i'm throwing out candy for the kids and blah 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 and he was like, well, that's really nice. And he's like, well, half of them are laxatives. <laughs> They're all going to shit their pants. <laughs> and uh, So I, I, that had never happened to me, but I, I'd heard stories of uh, people doing that on deployment. So the character reams them out. Uh, but, uh, you know, people just are like, blown away when I, they hear about stuff like that. I'll always contend one of the toughest missions I ever did was handing out school supplies to Iraqi children. I've never seen people lose their mind over freaking construction paper like like ever in your life. I'm being tackled by seven nine-year-olds for a ream of construction paper. And they're pulling yeah. on everything on my uniform. They're pulling on my weapon, on my bayonet, like everything that every every weapon that could have killed me, these kids are tugging on just to get some paper out of my hand. It's like, yo, I mean, seriously. <laughs> I mean, that just on one hand, you chuckle at it. But on the other hand, it's like this is like currency to them. You know, it's like legitimate currency from the old this stuff. Um, part of the the sort of uh, absurdities of of combat or just the interactions you have with your fellow soldiers. It's not even, you know, the, the inch here or there that may make the difference in your life. It's not even the wow, you got so damn lucky kind of deal um, that the bullet whizzed by your head. But it's just the daily interactions you have with your fellow soldiers um, that are there doing the same mundane BS every single day. Um, how much of, of those experiences um, are n- not only in the book, but how much do they kind of make up sort of the, the background for uh, your writing? Uh, a lot, especially in this story, because I mean, it centers around a guy who hardly ever gets to leave the fob. So um, I'm sure you're familiar with the E4 mafia. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, Second only to the Lieutenant Mafia, by the way. Second only to the Lieutenant Mafia. (laughs) I I brought the E4 Mafia to life in uh, in Kilroy. So um, there's a lot uh, to do with the the politics of the lower enlisted and how they interact with each other. Um, And then uh, one of the main characters in the book is a a chaplain who, uh, by a... Uh, human resources error in the army ended up uh, in the chaplain corps instead of the infantry corps. He was uh, a prior enlisted infantry who um, went through OBC, was supposed to go back into infantry, but uh, ended up being stuck in the chaplain corps. So he's a little bit rough around the edges. And I kind of pulled that character from uh, our own chaplain who uh, cursed a little bit more than uh, what I assumed a chaplain would do. Um, so I kind of just extrapolated that. Um, but, um, the majority of the book is those relationships that you build with the the soldiers around you when you're in such close quarters, um, and how you as a team kind of deal with the absurdities that, that come with, a the atmosphere of war that is just so much outside of, uh, normal life that, uh, you kind of need that support work to be able to process it all. Coincidentally enough, I actually deployed in my first deployment with a former 11 Bravo who went to be a chaplain's assistant, whatever that MOS is. And he deployed because he had the secondary MOS, secondary MOS of 11 Bravo. He deployed as that, but he was a chaplain's assistant. Um, And it was really weird to watch him make this transition from like, you know, killer to angel to killer to angel. And it's almost... You know, the schizophrenia by the end of the deployment, I'm like, dude, you need to go take a knee. Like, you need to, 
You need to back up. Like, I, I don't know. And he was like trying to extend to stay for a whole nother year. I'm like, you're a chaplain's assistant for crying out loud, dude. You know, like settle down. Um, so it's weird that you say that, but you know, I think the other thing, um, that uh, is prevalent is, is just sort of those experiences and the bonds that they form from them. You know, I mean, we've all got a story about somebody in our unit, somebody in our platoon, whatever it may be with our section, you know, um, that always, you know, just stood out to you for whatever given reason. Um, and you always remember that individual and whether it's a conversation or something that happened or whatever, but, um, do, 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 do those bonds, um, you know, how well are they reflected in the book? Uh, I think it's, uh, reflected quite well. Um, mostly I, I tried to zero in on the bond between four that's formed between, um, the chaplain and the main character, as well as the, uh, the main character and this, uh, interpreter who, uh, was kind of shunned by the, the squadron commander. Uh, because this interpreter is uh, a guy who his whole dream is to make enough money to be able to get out of Afghanistan and his family out of Afghanistan and and leave that world behind. And um, the the main character at the beginning can't understand that. Um, because, uh, he's of the mind that if, if you want anything to change here and what we're doing here to matter, then people like you need to stay and, uh, try to make a difference. Um, and then it kind of ends up flip-flopping, uh, views towards the end where the, the main character, uh, maybe I shouldn't be given all this way. The, the the main character uh, starts to be, see things from his point of view, um, but then the the interpreter uh, begins to see that uh, like this is his country, and if anything's going to ha- happen here, then he needs to do something about it. Um, and it, it's been interesting uh, with the the recent stuff in the news uh, yeah. with the pullout in Iraq and and all the or sorry Afghanistan, Afghanistan yeah. and the. Uh, news of yeah. the interpreters and all the contract workers uh, trying to get out. Uh, it's really kind of made me recall that piece of the book and uh, not so much rethink the way I wrote it, but uh, it, it definitely makes me think a little bit harder. Uh, I guess nobody could predict this outcome. Uh, maybe you could, but. Um, well, well, well- you, you could predict the second outcome, the outcome that is after we leave. Uh, that's very predictable. But, you know, you mentioned the interpreter. I had an amazing relationship with my interpreter. And and it's one of those things. Like, I was around my Terp probably more than most of my soldiers on every given day because I couldn't function without him, right? Like, I'm training the Iraqi army, and I needed him there literally to tell me everything, what they were saying. And so, you know, we spent a lot of time together, um, you know, post-meetings and everything else. And and uh, it's it's a... It's really hard to describe um, how that that bond forms. Um, and, you know, I would joke with my interpreter so much. Um, you know, he was – we're still friends on Facebook. He, he left Iraq shortly after I did. He just managed to get out and he went to Europe. I don't know how he got out there, but he did. Um, and I'm happy for him. But, you know, we, we had such a great relationship that I could joke with him a lot. Um, you know, one of the things that the Iraqis would always say, I think I've told this story before, but, you know, um, 
inshallah, right? If God wills it, you know, is what they would always say. And we were talking about, I forget what we were, the circumstances of what we were talking about, but it was about them being someplace at some time, you know, and, and he looked at me and said, well, it's up to the God. And I looked at him and I said, which God, your God or my God? And he says, sir, there is only one God. I said, no, 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 no. There's your God and there's my God. My God has me on time where I'm supposed to be. Your God certainly doesn't get anybody there where they're supposed to be. So which God are you talking about? Your God or my God? Sir, there is only one God. <laughs> he couldn't wrap his head around the joke for like 15 minutes. Uh, you know, it's stuff like that that stands out to me. But it, we had that sort of relationship back and forth, or that's probably not very PC to say now in these days. Um, but nonetheless, uh, it, it, we had that kind of relationship where we could laugh about it. But um, th- those. And, and yeah, you know, with all the news, it is very personal now. You know, I mean, I'm glad my turp is out, but I certainly understand all the people back here who were fighting for um, their interpreters to have a, a better life because they were just as much at risk as we are every single day. I didn't go anywhere. I didn't go on any mission without my turp. And they didn't even give him a gun. He just sat there with like, you know, this mini little body armor vest and a Kevlar. It's like, you know, so uh, that, that, whole exp- that, that whole relationship and that experience is sort of uh, very germane to the to the combat experience for most of us, at least. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I always felt like the the interpreter relationship was kind of like the little brother relationship, where yeah. they they kind of got like picked on by the unit a little bit, but it was because they loved them, and uh, you know there there was definitely that bond that formed over time, especially with the the ones that ended up going above and beyond. And, uh, it's like anything, it's like the basic training experience. I mean, you, you can single out who's going to be the, the good above and beyond interpreter and who's going to be, uh, the one that runs for the Hills within the first couple of weeks of, of working with them. Um, but we, we ended up being lucky. And I, I know that our, uh, companies had some really good interpreters and, uh, I still see messages from them between, some of our guys on Facebook to this day. So, uh, anything I, I, I assume that a book, much like a movie, goes through an editing process. Anything that was sort of uh, taken out of the book, or in retrospect, wish you had put in the book that wasn't there. Um. Yeah, I mean, you always end up uh, killing some of your babies when you you go through the editing process. Um, none that I can think of that I was I was too heartbroken about um the editing process uh was actually fairly smooth uh one of my best friends from home uh served as a a beta reader for me so he helped me clean it up before i ended up sending it off to an editor and then when it came back from the editor um he only had minor changes for me to make uh so i didn't have to to cut too much i was pretty critical uh when i went from my second draft or first draft in my second draft. So there wasn't a lot that was uh, left in there that was flaw. Did you have um, a, a preset publisher for this or you kind of wrote it and then pitched it to everybody? I pitched it to a lot of people. Um, what was that so process like? That uh, was long and painful. Um, so I had to research agencies first uh, my my goal or my process was i was going to pitch to agents um if i couldn't find an agent uh, to take it up i was going to pitch to smaller publishers and then if i couldn't find a publisher to pick it up i was going to pitch to or just uh self-publish it and promote it myself um so i ended up pitching to a lot of agents um uh, for 
being a, a first-time novelist, I had uh, a good number of people who asked for the full manuscript, uh, which um, any writer will tell you is, is a good sign, but uh, it doesn't mean you're, you're going to get there. Uh, but what I was told by all the agents was that war novels were kind of a tired genre at that point. Um, and they're just, they would, were telling me they didn't know how they would sell it. Um, so once I got through all the agents, uh, that was probably about a nine month process because there's just such a long waiting period between submission and hearing back. And, and a lot of times you don't hear back at all. Yeah. Um, so I ended up submitting to a bunch of publishers and then I found a 15 publishing, uh, which is run by uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel Pete Donnelly. Um, and it's centered completely around veteran stories. And uh, he asked for the full manuscript, and uh, it wasn't too long after that that uh, he gave me the the go-ahead that we were going to do it. So um, if you get a chance, you should check out A15 Publishing. They've got a a lot of good stuff up there. Um, The guy who uh, is one of the main editors for Coffee or Die magazine actually uh, published one of his books through them. Uh, about the 75th uh, Rangers and uh, all of their actions through uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, when you finally get this thing greenlighted to go, what's kind of the emotion and the feeling in the whole thing? Well, relief. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I spent the better part of probably seven years uh, writing this thing and editing this thing and um paying for an editor so there was a lot of love into this thing and um i was fully prepared to do the self-publishing but that wasn't necessarily the way i wanted to go especially because i want to make this a career um for the next book it would be much better to be able to say i had a publisher backing my previous book than to be joe schmo who just pasted it up on Amazon and prayed that somebody would be gullible enough to click on it. Um, so, I mean, not that there's anything wrong with self-publishing, but th- there's definitely more weight behind having a publisher behind you. What were some of your closest friends and fellow soldiers reactions when they read it? So I've got a very good uh, reaction from all the guys from my old unit. Um, a lot of them have, thanked me for for putting this stuff on paper they they recognize a lot of the events and a lot of the characters in it and uh i i haven't had a a negative word yet from anybody i served with about it well that's good uh you mentioned how the reaction was that so you know war movies and war books have have been uh inundated you know there's too many of them um and they're sort of our parents and grandparents westerns right like john wayne made what 800 westerns you know, in the 50s and 60s, that's that's what war, post-9-11 war movies have become, right? I mean, they, there's just so many of them out there. Um, and I'm super critical of them all uh, just because of the experience that I had. And I get that Hollywood and you know takes liberties you know, to make a movie, but different discussion. Um, where I was going with all this was, as I was off on my tangent, um, you talk so much about how all these movies and these books paint – anybody in uniform out to be a hero. And and that's such a dangerous term that we throw around. Um, and the hero worship of soldiers uh, now is, is it's, it's, it's literally like teetering, you know, on a, on a, 
on a very slim ledge. Um, when you choose to write a story that's not about a hero, which again seems like almost like a layup, and I don't want to denigrate anybody who's wrote, wrote a book about a hero, but you know, uh, it's easy to write a Tom Cruise movie. Like he wins in the end, right? There's there's nothing. Go find me the Tom Cruise movie where he's a loser, right? I mean, it, it, it's it, it follows a certain path. Um, was part of your goal in this to sort of take some not so subtle shots at that idea that everybody in uniform is a hero? Yeah, it's funny you you say that because I actually the uh, author's note at the beginning of the book uh, talks about how uh, it's not the intention of the book to uh, downgrade or dispel the notion of uh, or not dispel the notion, but not to like downplay the service uh, of any veteran, but to just kind of recognize that we're all people too. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it takes all kinds to make up the military, just like it takes all kinds to make up the civilian life. And, um, yeah, it, it was definitely my intention to kind of shed some light on that, that, you know, just because you come back from a deployment in Afghanistan doesn't mean you were out kicking in doors and you saw some crazy stuff. I mean, there's plenty of people that, deploy and they come home and they get out and they just carry on with their normal life. I mean, I feel like that's, that's kind of what I did. And, um, yeah, I, I, I'm proud of what I did. I wear my American flag tank top on 4th of July, just like anybody else. But, uh, I, I agree with you that this kind of like hero worship thing has gotten a little bit out of control. And I think, it just kind of plays into our society that has developed through social media being kind of like a, a look at me society. And uh, we as veterans, I, I think, need to do a better job of policing ourselves. Um, I mean, I see a lot of stuff on Facebook that's very like self glorifying uh, from old vets who are. Uh, Afghan and Iraq vets who post things that I, I guess would I would classify as self praising mm-hmm. and and I don't know if that's so much them wanting to brag about it as it is like them that's their glory days and they they want to get that out there and relive that and have that recognized, um, which I think can be dangerous because, uh, you spend too much time living in the past and you don't propel yourself forward. Well, and the other thing that has happened is along with this sort of, you know, civilian side worship of the military and adulation of the military, it now becomes a shield. You play the veteran card real quick and all of a sudden it's, you know, don't go there, you know, don't, you know, we must respect them and, and I'm with you. Look, I'm not denigrating anybody's service. I'm not denigrating anything anybody did. Um, but just because we put on a uniform doesn't make us immune to criticism or better than anybody else. Hey, I mean, true story. I, I did plenty of crazy stuff in Iraq. You know what else I did? Got a hold of some booze, got drunk and puked all over my bed one night. I mean, you know, like it, it, we're, 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 we do the same things. We're just in different circumstances. And some people have done some very extraordinary things in very dire and, and, and extreme circumstances. And those things are great, and they deserve all the, you know, praise that's out there. But on the other end of the spectrum, 
there's a lot of dumb shit that's happened. And we've talked about a lot of it on this podcast with people. Um, so uh, I, you know, personally, and this is just Mark speaking, personally, it's one of those things where I get very nervous now um, anytime veterans are attached to anything outside the veteran space um, and outside the military space, because I think there's all of a sudden a, a a sort of what's in it for me and a how can I profit off of this? How can I commercialize this? How can I um, use the, the military for my benefit? And And there's a huge part of me that still wishes to this day that everybody would leave us alone and let us go back to doing what we do under the, the the cloak of, hey, the Army's there. We just know they got our back and leave it at that. But in fairness, we can't operate that way because we're a taxpayer-funded institution, right? Um, we owe the government and the people transparency and clairvoyancy on who we are and how we go about our business for the most part, right? Generally, we owe them that. Um, and, and because we've dealt with so much smut recently through a variety of different issues um, – we owe them more transparency now than ever before, but that comes at a price, um, at a very big price. And if you've ever been on military Twitter, and I'm sure you have, it's a pretty gross place to be at times. Twitter in general is a pretty well, gross <laughs> place to be at times. That goes without saying, yes. But, uh, you know, military Twitter is particularly a, a – it, it's a the, one of the worst forms of cannibalism I've ever seen. Yeah, I would agree with you there. So uh, anyway, I'm done opining. So you also wrote a couple of other short stories after the book. Uh, well, before I get to the short stories, like, were you surprised at how successful the book was when it when it first came out? Um, yeah, um, it's. I mean, it's, I'm still getting there. Um, so we had a, a great launch, um, and it's been doing pretty steady numbers over. It's only been out for about six months now. Um, so it's been doing pretty steady numbers and, uh, it's, it's continuing to grow this summer, especially, um, word's been getting out. Um, this podcast is definitely going to help. Last week, I gave a, uh, a 40 minute presentation, uh, at the USS Silverside about the book and about, uh, um, topics related to the book. Um, and then I've had a, a couple other, uh, blurbs in the news. Um, so I'm hoping that we'll continue to push it forward. Um, it just, uh, being with a, a smaller publisher, it takes a while to get the ball rolling. And, uh, I, I foresee nothing but good things so far. And I keep harassing celebrities on Twitter to try to get them to retweet my, uh, my tweets about the book. So, <laughs> um, so what was the other impetus for the other short stories, um, that you have written, um, one of them, let me get the names here. Uh, oh, dark 30. Right. Um, and where is it? Where am I? No, tell me out here. You wrote the damn thing. The care war. So the care war was actually posted on, uh, uh, zero dark 30, zero which dark, is okay. part of the veterans writing project. Um, and that I actually wrote, um, simultaneously while I was writing the novel, because I felt like I needed a better, uh, understanding of the main antagonist. So I wrote a short story around his backstory. Um, so that uh, I went through the process with that. I, I wrote it, uh, had actually my old high school English teacher uh, volunteered to edit it for me. Uh, and then I started submitting that around and it got picked up by Zero Dark 30 and uh, posted on their website. Um, and then I made it available on Amazon after that. Um, 
but uh, yeah, if, if anybody who's read the book wants a little bit better understanding about uh, Nasir, the the main bad guy in the, the story, uh, you can go and check that out. Um, the other uh, short story is called Post, um, and I wrote that kind of in uh, a little flash of emotion after um, one of the the many. Um, shooting uh, uh mass shootings that has happened over the last couple of years I, I i can't even recall which one prompted it um but it's basically a follows a guy who hears about a mass shooting in his town and his re- reaction is immediately to like go start posting on social media about it and the aftermath that follows uh follows that um so it's kind of just exploring the it's a little bit cynical look at, at our reactions to such major events nowadays. I was going to say sort of a dramatic pivot from what Kilroy was here is, you know, lighthearted and funny and you get the opposite end of the spectrum with that. Yeah. I, I wrote that in, like I said, there was uh, a little bit of emotion behind that and uh, I ended up getting done and I, I re- kind of thought about not posting it or putting it up uh, for a little while, but uh, I ended up feeling like it was, it was good enough to go up there. So what's the hardest part about writing a book? Finding the time. So I, uh, I have a full-time job as a a paralegal for my friend's law firm. Um, My wife is a elementary school principal and we have a, a son that's eight years old and a daughter that's five years old. So most of my writing time happens when everybody else in the house is unconscious. So <laughs> I, uh, I get up early a lot of days. I uh, stay up late a lot of days. Uh, is run by my... When I took the job was that any... Any time I wasn't engaged in firm business, I was uh, able to work on my writing. So that's been a, a huge factor in being able to finish. Uh, Kilroy was here, and uh, it's I'm about halfway through the third draft of my next novel. So I need to uh, send you some melatonin for the kids, man. Works like a charm. We have some, don't worry. Okay. I, was, I got twin five-year-old boys, so, you know, I mean, melatonin is in, is in full ready supply in my house. Anytime I need to knock them out, just bam. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. Um, so you're starting to write <laughs> starting to write the second book, as, as you just mentioned. Um, can you cue us into a little bit about what it's about and where you're going with it? Yeah. So I'm, uh, I'm from Michigan, so it is set in a small town in Michigan, and um, – they ha- this town has a mayor that's been mayor for like 40 some years and then he all of a sudden dies mysteriously and uh, the story centers around the contentious mayoral election that, that uh, stems from that um, kind of playing off from current political climate of hardcore left versus hardcore right and then uh, I also bring in some of the Legend of the the Michigan Dog Man that uh, not many people know about. It's kind of like a uh, werewolf slash beast of Bray Road kind of uh, legend. And there's a uh, celebrity monster hunter that uh, comes to town uh, to try to help 
solve the deaths that are happening around town. I would, uh, well, let me ask you, when does it do out? Do you know, have you gotten a timeline for it yet? Uh, I'm hoping to have it off to an editor before the end of the year, uh, which means that it'll probably be late next summer before I'm uh, even submitting to agents and publishers. So it'll be a little while. Gotcha. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you just because you were there um, with the pullout of Afghanistan. I'm sure I know your combat experience is a little bit limited, but you certainly have friends who didn't have that experience. Have you had conversations with them about thoughts and feelings on the whole thing? And, and where are you with it personally? Yeah. Um, most of the guys I've talked to, uh, they're kind of in the same boat that I am that it, it's, it's just kind of about time. Um, I mean, it, the war there felt stagnant when we were there in 2009. Um, we were, even then our mission was to, to put Afghans in the lead. Um, we were always running missions with the ANP and the ANA and, um, it, it just doesn't sound like things have improved much since then. It feels like we've just kind of been treading water for the last 10 years. Um, and pretty much everybody's that I've talked to consensus is if we're not making any headway, what are we still doing? Yeah, no, that's fair. Um, I'm sure that, you know, uh, you have had friends who have dealt with this, but, you know, sort of the after effects of war, um, even for you, I mean, you know, you're not immune to any of this stuff by any stretch of the imagination, just because you didn't, um, you know, have this, this grand combat experience, but, um, what's post war life been like for you in the mindset and some of your fellow comrades who, who have served? I mean, do you guys spend a lot of time talking about this or? Uh, some, um, that's actually what part of my talk was about last week. Uh, um, was a lot of folks when they hear about PTSD and veteran suicide and depression, they immediately think of uh, veterans who've seen high levels of combat, who just seen awful things and can't get around it, um, lost friends and, and whatnot. Um, but I mean, there's a lot of folks that go through that type of depression just because of the separation from the military. Um, when you get out, it's, it's a complete 180 in lifestyle. I mean, it requires a, a rewiring <laughs> of your brain almost. Uh, I remember how long it took me to stop saying Roger, like to everything in the affirmative. And like, you know, you just, you'd have to joke about things differently. You can't say the same things in the, the civilian workforce that you can say in the military workforce. I, I mean, I guess, I, I don't know if that's rings true today, but uh, 10 years sure it ago. Does. Nobody uses the word behoove in the regular world. Right. Nobody so. uses behoove, you know, <laughs> nobody moves, shoots and communicates. Yeah. So you, you get out and you have to, this, you've got this identity that you've attached yourself to for, I mean, a minimum of the last four years and you, you're this entirely separate person. And now you're expected to, to change, to fit in with this civilian life, as we call it. And you lose that piece of yourself and you try to fill that vacuum with uh, like a new job um, and 
a new family, whatever your, your life course is. And a lot of times, um, that new job is not as rewarding as that old job you had or that old identity you had. And I feel like that's something that isn't talked about a lot um, when addressing uh, veteran depression is that that transition period um, not being a combat experience related, but being just that separation from that old identity and uh, being able to make your civilian life something that you deem as important as what you deemed your military life. Yeah. And, um, oh, by the way, the only mafia that people in the civilian world know is the, you know, one that my ancestors ran, you know, the Italian. There's no <laughs> E4 or lieutenant mafia that uh, anybody in the civilian world knows what the hell you're talking about. Um, and, and I agree. Yeah, I mean, the transition is, is, is an incredibly, incredibly tough part. Um, I'm glad we are where we are with it now. You know, I'm glad that we are, we're better about it. I, I'm glad that uh, mental health is starting to receive, you know, the focus that it needs. As a matter of fact, I just ran into a guy who's still on active duty who they released to an outpatient program for his TBI while he's on active duty. Like he didn't go to the government. He went to a, a, a nonprofit agency that specializes in TBI. And that's, that, that tells you leaps and bounds. I mean, they would have medically discharged him and said, see you, go figure it out on your own. Um, or, you know, they would have sent him to an army doctor to misdiagnose him, much like your knee. Um, right. that said, you know, it, I just think it speaks to where we are, um, and, and what 20 plus years of combat, uh, have done to an organization right now that, that frankly is struggling to find which way is up, you know, right. um, and, uh, between that and, you know, wokeness in the military, if that's a thing. And, and oh, by the way, mandatory vaccines now and this, that. I mean, it's just, you know, we have combat seems to be the easiest part of what we've done in reality. <laughs> right. Like and you chuckle, but it, it's honestly true. Yeah. You know, if, if you could just send us to war and leave us there, it's like, OK, we got all that part down. It's just everything else that surrounds it, you know, that tends to make it much more difficult than uh, than it already is. So, um Anything about the military you miss? Ah, uh, yeah, I miss uh, the structure, um, and I've tried to maintain it as much as I possibly can. I, uh, well, you have your I kids still, standing out at attention for breakfast, or what? I mean, you know, what's, I what's make going? them do push-ups if they <laughs> if they fall out of line. Uh, that's uh, my go-to punishment. I, is there like I a whistle my... and kids come running down for chow? <laughs> I haven't got him in the front yard doing flutter kicks yet. Okay, well, but, uh, I want video when it happens. I want to see it on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I mean, I still get up uh, every morning at like 5, 5.30 and work out. And uh, I, that's been the key for me to uh, to keep working on my writing is to maintain the discipline um, because w- without that, I'd I'd probably be – sitting on the couch eating a bag of Doritos every night and be about 300 pounds. Um, so I, I miss a lot of the structure, um, but I've tried to integrate that into my my daily life. And I, I miss the camaraderie. Uh, I made some of the best friends I'll ever make in my life uh, at uh, Fort Knox and Fort Drum. So um, I would say those two things are the biggest things for me. Is there anything that keeps you up at night about the wartime experience. I mean, is there a part of you that still wonders sort of, could I have hacked it, you know, in legitimate combat? Does that bother you at all? 
Yeah, I wouldn't say it keeps me up at night, but uh, I find myself returning to that uh, every once in a while and dwelling on it uh, for some time. Um, you know, you always got the the what could have been scenario. Um, and I mean, uh, things played out the way they did, uh, perhaps by uh, divine plan. So I'm not going to question it. But uh, uh yeah, I mean, if you if you're a combat arms officer, it, I think uh, you always wish that you had uh, the same stories to tell as uh, everybody else. But uh, you know, I made to learn to make a pretty good batch of coffee, and uh, I got pretty good at PowerPoint slides. So, so uh, any use for PowerPoint slides in the legal world or no? Not really. No, no. The, <laughs> it's a skill that yeah. totally got wasted once you left the military. You know, the uh, the presentation I gave last week, I had to come up with a slideshow for it. And I was like, I got this. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's funny, too. In, in over 20 years, I still suck at it. Like, I am so basic. <laughs> I, I was, I, I you know, I ended up doing COVID response for 10 months for the National Guard here in Georgia. And uh, I had to brief the, the one and two-star general every week. And I literally had to get a lieutenant, like, to do the slides for me. And she was out, like, she could move. So I'm like, I'm like watching her do this and I'm mesmerized. And how quick she can move everything and make it bigger. I'm like, did you go to a class for this that I missed over the last 20 years? Like, how do you, you know, but yeah, there are apparently people like you on staff who all they do is make do PowerPoint slides and they, they know everything about it. And I was just never that guy. I remember one operations uh, brief we had over there when the Sigo had inserted some animation into his slide where a, a little plane came and did a circle around the PowerPoint. And the whole room and went, <gasps> The whole room just was silent, and the stove just lit him up. <laughs> he got in trouble for it? Oh, yeah. yeah. Really? Ripped him apart. Oh, see, I give creative points for that. See, I'm the, I'm, I'm the anti-officer. I'm the anti-colonel. <laughs> like, oh, that's pretty cool. You know? So he got lit up for it? Oh, man. See, you uptight, uptight combat arms officers, they don't know how to laugh at anything. You guys are so serious all the time. Worried about your oh, spurs. Yeah. What? <laughs> Hey, you don't knock the spurs. I got them on the wall downstairs. Do you? You still got them? Oh, yeah. I got my Stetson and my spurs mounted down there. It's a, it's a thing that you have, guys. Like, you just leave that Stetson out where everybody can obnoxiously see it. It's right. not like in a box in a closet. It is, like, on display on the wall, you know, with nothing within six feet of it. I have a ring around the inside of my Stetson. It's a stain from Yingling Beer because at the uh, the first stable call I went to at Fort Drum, I had to chug an entire Stetson full of Yingling as a punishment for missing some line of the, uh, the cavalry poem. Oh, or no, cool. no, it was because I had two last names. That's what, that's what I uh, had, or two first names. That's what oh. I had to drink for. Dear Lord. You, you kind of date yourself with chugging Yingling. Like it used to be popular back in the day. It's kind of lost a little bit of its luster. Yeah. I'm not a fan. Yeah. I was going to say, it's like right up there at Rolling Rock, more yep. Pennsylvania beers. It's terrible. <laughs> So, well, look, I mean, uh, again, the book is called Kilroy is Here. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it anywhere else, right? I mean, it's not hard to find. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of the smaller bookstores, you'll have to ask for it, but they can order it in. Uh, it's available through most of the big distributors that they use. So. Well, if you're going to go to Amazon, make sure you go to hazardground.com first and then click on Amazon. So uh, Brett gets a win and, and we get a win as well. But uh, again, look forward to, for, forward to the next uh, the next novel. Check out the short stories as well. Uh, you have your own website uh, for people who uh, uh, want to check check out your stuff. 
hogwashwriting.com, correct? Yes. Yep. So uh, there's not a whole lot new up there. There's a lot of ridiculous stuff that I've just been kind of writing over the last couple of years. Um, but uh, it gives kind of a good sample of what my writing style is. There's also uh, links to the book up there and uh, some info on some of the veteran charities that I'm uh, going to try to donate to with any proceeds I make from the book. So, well, Again, continued success. I, I hope the book continues to do well and takes off. Uh, again, just an, an amazing uh, sort of look at combat uh, from a lens that everybody who's worn a uniform definitely understands, but those who never have would get a kick out of understanding uh, this side of combat and this side of, of deploying downrange. So uh, fantastic work. Certainly appreciate it. Great to connect with you, brother. Wishing you nothing but the best for you and your family, man. Uh, and, and, and thanks so much for being here. Thanks, sir. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, it's been a great time talking to you. Yeah, you don't have to call me, sir. It's okay. I'm not that, I'm not that, high, that high level. I call everybody. Sir. <laughs> Brett Allen, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. 